We are starting a brand new series today. It is a three-part series uh, starting today. And the good thing about that is that all of you guys are watching and here with us. We're all on the same page. We're all starting together. Now, um, this is one of those sermons or sermon series where, and this happens a lot to me, where when I feel like God gives me the message, my question is, why, God? Why, why, why? Why do you want me to talk about that? And that's been happening a lot more recently where I don't understand why this is what God wants us to talk about, why this is a sermon. It seems kind of random and, like, it's, it doesn't really seem to make sense with what's going on in life and in the calendar. And just like, why are we doing this? But every time, I'll tell you guys, every time I have that feeling where I'm confused and I don't know what God is doing, that is when he shows up and it's powerful and really, really awesome. So as nervous as I am about the topic, I'm excited for what God is going to do. You know, I've never preached a sermon where I have such little faith that anyone is going to do anything about what I talk about. But this is one of those series. Like this message, I'm like... I don't know if anyone is going to respond to this. I don't know if anyone is going to be like, yeah, I'm going to do the things that you're asking me to do. Because the series title for this week is called Fasting. I can tell by your reaction that there's only one person that is excited about this series over here. Everyone else, when I said fasting, this is what I heard. If you were online you couldn't hear it, this is what I heard. No one's really excited about fasting, but for some reason, I feel like God wants us to talk about fasting for the next three weeks. Okay, we got another one here. Feeling the peer pressure on this side. Um, now, I have to put a couple disclaimers, a couple things that you guys got to understand about. This series is not a new year, new you, y'all need to lose weight, so you better start fasting. That's not what it is, right? I didn't look out at the audience the last couple weeks and I'm like, they need to start fasting. That, that's not where this is coming from. This is not a health message. This is not about like how you can abstain from foods and you can be healthy. And, and that's a good thing, but that's not what this message series is about. The other thing you have to know about this series and about me, I have never, I'll be honest, I have never preached on fasting in my life before. In my entire ministry of about 17 years, I've never given a sermon on fasting. The reason why is, number one, I don't do it. I don't do it. And some of you are all like, clearly you don't do it. You don't fast. I don't do it. And I've done it a couple times for some random things like with school and, you know, all different projects. I've done it. I've done it as a part of school, but it's not a part of my life. And the other thing is I don't understand it. Honestly, I don't really understand fasting and why Jesus tells us to do it, why people do it in the Bible. I don't have any, like, personal, like, feelings of conviction. Like, oh, this is what it did. I don't have any testimonies to share. Which is odd because what that does is that makes me extremely underqualified to talk to you about this. But the good news is, to be honest, I'm underqualified to talk about a lot of the things I talk about here on stage, right? We're talking about God and what God is doing, the mind of God, the history. Like, it's never stopped me before. But for some reason, I feel convicted that this is what God wants us to talk about in the next few weeks. So... As I kind of prepared and studied it, I started to get really excited. And I got really excited because of what the tensions that fasting 
intersects with. Let me say that again. The reason why I got excited is that fasting intersects and responds to three specific tensions that most of us feel and experience in our walk with Jesus. Right? If you're trying to follow Jesus, you have probably experienced one or all of these three tensions that you struggle with. And the cool thing is that as I studied fasting, they intersect with these tensions. So here are the three tensions that fasting kind of deals with. The first one is this. I want to change, but I can't. I'm wondering if anyone can relate to that. I want to change, but I can't. I feel like I need to do this in my life, but I can't. I feel like I have to change in this way. I have to do this or stop doing this, but I can't. That's tension number one that fasting kind of responds to. The second is I want to pray, but I can't. When I pray, I feel like, it's not going anywhere. I don't feel like God hears me. I feel like I'm just talking to myself. I want to have a deep prayer life, but I can't. And in that message, which we're going to do next week, we're going to respond to one of the really strange stories in the Gospels where Jesus says to his disciples after they fail to cast out a demon, he says, this kind can only become, be done by prayer and fasting. We're going to talk about that next week. I want to pray, but I, I, I just can't. It's not meaningful for me. And the last one, the third week, as we're going to close the message series, I want to do good. And I want to have the right motivations for doing good, but I can't. Now, my assumption here is that all of you can relate to at least one of these tensions. And maybe all of them, and maybe all of them right now in this moment, you're like, that's my spiritual life. I want to change, but I can't. I want to pray, but I can't. And I want to do good. I want to be good. I want to love people, but... But I can't. So over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about fasting as it responds and intersects with three, these three specific tensions. And I'm super excited about it. So let's pray and let's get into the first one today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much, God, for the people in this room. And I thank you so much for this message. As, as nervous as I am about it, as like, you know, unfamiliar as I am with this topic, Lord, there's a reason that you want us to deal with this. And Father, I believe that you're going to do something through this time. In your name we pray. Amen. So the first tension is, I want to change, but I can't. I want to change, but I can't. Now, the question I have to ask you, if you've ever felt this way about kind of anything, but specifically spiritual things, what is the reason why you don't change? Think about it, okay? You don't have to answer out loud. What is the thing that gets in the way? What is the root cause of why you have every intention in your mind to do something different or be different, but it doesn't play out in your everyday life, and you actually don't see the change, except unless your goal is don't die, you, you know, other than that, like you don't reach your goals. What is the reason why you don't? And again, as we think about what it is spiritually, what is the spiritual reason why I want to change in my faith, I want to grow in my faith, why doesn't it happen? Now, some of you guys are thinking, well, it's easy. The answer is sin, Right? Sin is the reason why I don't change. Sin in me is the reason why I don't change. Now, that is true. That is true. But I'm going to be honest with you, that's not that helpful. But how helpful is it to be like, well, I'm like this because of sin? Because I can't stand up here and just be like, okay, well, get rid of sin, guys. Happy Sabbath. Have a great day. That's not very helpful for me as I preach to tell you, just get rid of your sin. So, yes, it's true that sin is the ultimately the reason why we don't change, but there is something else. 
There's something else that the Apostle Paul writes about, and he says, this is the reason why you want to change, but you don't change. This is the reason why you keep making the same mistakes. This is the reason why you keep getting sucked and trapped by the same addictive behavior. This is the reason why you want to do something and be different, but you don't. And the word he uses in, his, in, in Greek is the word sarks. Sarks. That sounds like a bad word, huh? That sounds like an evil, dark word, sarks, right? The Apostle Paul writes about the sarks, and it's translated, much more familiar word for many of you is the flesh. The Apostle Paul says the reason why you want to change but you don't, it's because of the flesh. And he talks a lot about the flesh. Now, I think some of you guys, if you grew up in church, you've heard this before, and you have some kind of understanding of what the flesh is. And this is so important that we understand Let me give you two verses from the Apostle Paul as he describes the flesh. And he's talking about people who are in the flesh. He says, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So this phrase here, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. Then in Romans 7, 5, he says, for when we were in the realm of the flesh, when we were fleshy people, The sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. Now, I want you to create a definition. What is the flesh according to the Apostle Paul? What is the flesh according to your experience? What is the flesh? Most of us would probably say the flesh is this. The flesh is the thing that makes me want, love, and do bad things, to be honest, the things that I like. I like them. Right? They're not things that I hate. They're fun, and they're enjoyable, and they make me feel good. That's why I want love and do them. Like, this is generally how we understand this is the flesh, right? This is why I don't change, right? I, I don't change because I want to do things that don't lead to positive change. I want to be lazy. I want to sleep in. I want to eat that. I want to eat that at this certain time. I want to be with that person. And these are the things that I want, love, and do. This is the flesh in me. The problem is that this definition is partly true. Yes, the flesh does do this. The flesh does make you want things that are not good for you. The flesh makes you love things that you shouldn't love. And it makes you do things and leads you to make certain decisions that may be pleasurable in the moment, but are worse for you and unhealthy and will damage your life. The flesh absolutely does that. But the flesh is more complex than that. And we have to understand what the flesh is in order for us to actually change. The flesh does those things. And we know those things are bad, and we know those things are wrong, but we just keep going back to them. Here's the thing. There is an element or an aspect of your life, there are things that you love that are not bad, but are still under the control of the flesh. Let me say that one more time. There are things that you love, the things that you want, that are not necessarily sinful or bad or evil, but they are under the control of the flesh. I want to round out your understanding of what the flesh really is. It's not just simply something in you that makes you do bad things or makes you want bad things or make you want or love bad things. The flesh also deals with loving the right things in the wrong order. The flesh is what makes you love the right things in the wrong order. And a phrase for us today is disordered desires. Disordered desires. Things that you you love and appreciate and want that aren't necessarily bad, but you've put them in the wrong rank in your life. That is also 
the flesh. And those things aren't evil and sinful. They're good things, actually, like family and your work and your relationships. Those are good things, but we love them in the wrong order. Jesus often talked about the order of things and the proper order. He says this in Matthew 6. Seek first the king, his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Seek first. It's a, it's a verse about order. Then he says this as he talks about the greatest commandment in Matthew chapter 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The flesh is not simply the thing that makes you do bad things. It's the thing that confuses you and prioritizes things in the wrong way. In other words, like I said, it's good to love your job. Now, I don't know how many of you love your job. According to stats, very few of you actually love your job. But that's a, that doesn't matter. I want you to love your job. It's a good thing to love your job. It's a good thing for you to love the work that you do. But if you love your job more than you love your family, that's a disordered desire and there's a problem. You see what I'm saying? It's good to love your job. The Bible, God does not want you to hate your job. Okay, maybe some of you, God wants you to hate your job for some reason. But God wants you to, I think generally God wants you to love your job, love your work, but you can't love them above your family. And it's a wonderful thing to love your family. Right? It is a blessing from the Lord. Like your family is given to you. It's a gift from God. You should love it. It's your duty to love your family. But you can't love your family more than you love God. That is a disordered desire. And when you have disordered desires, it wreaks havoc on your life. Many of you seek security and self-preservation and survival, right? Like you want to have a comfortable life. You want to have a peaceful life. You want to provide for your children. Those are good things, guys. Those are wonderful things that you do as parents and as, as people who are responsible. Those are good things. But your desire and love for self-preservation and security cannot be more than your love for your heavenly father. That's a disordered desire. And when you have disordered desires, it leads to a life that is imbalanced, skewed, and issues arrive from that. So we have to understand that the flesh is much more dangerous because sometimes you don't know. You don't even know it's the flesh. You think it's you. And so the flesh is the thing that keeps you from changing the way you want to change. I want to change, but I can't. The reason, the obstacle is the flesh. Now, the reason we're talking about the flesh is because this is really, really important in the discussion with fasting. And so let me give you guys a quick theology of fasting, where we see fasting in the scripture and what it's really about. And you have to understand the flesh in order to understand what, 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 what fasting is really about. Now, let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the, the famous story of the fall of man, right, when sin entered the world. I want you to pay attention to some of the details. Genesis 3, 1, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Last verse from this story. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food 
and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. The original temptation, the original sin was not about food. It wasn't. It was about trust. Do you trust God or do you trust the serpent? Do you trust what, what God wants for you is good and it's, it's about, you know, giving you a life of flourishing? Or are you going to trust your own thoughts or are you going to trust the serpent in your ear? Like that's the ultimate, that's really what it's about. But the means was food. The means through which the serpent was to trick and deceive Eve was through her stomach and through her taste buds. It was through food. I've never really heard any sermon that talked about the element of food in the original sin. But it's there. And it's a detail, but it seems important, doesn't it? It is through the means of the food, of the appetite, of the flesh, that the serpent was able to deceive Eve. It was through the desires of the flesh, of the body, of the thing in her, this, 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 this body that she was in, by appealing to the appetite, he was able to deceive her. Interesting. Now, let's fast forward to Matthew chapter 4, and I want you to pay attention to similarities here and see where food pops up. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Does that sound familiar? A moment where a human... And the devil go toe-to-toe, one-v-one, one-on-one. Does this sound familiar? If you're thinking this sounds familiar, then you are absolutely right. This is round two of the battle in the Garden of Eden. All scholars believe that Jesus here is replaying the initial temptation in the Garden of Eden when he was on earth. So he goes to the wilderness. He goes to the desert to be tempted by the devil, just like Eve was tempted by the devil in the garden. Verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, which makes sense. I feel like we'd be hungry if he fasted 40 days, if we fasted 40 days, 40 nights. Then the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread, food, once again. Tell these stones to become bread. Once again, the temptation or the sin is not food. It's not about eating carbs and gluten. That's not bad. The temptation was trusting the word from the Lord because right before this, Jesus was baptized and guess what God said to Jesus? This is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. And the devil says, if you are the son of God, prove yourself. You're hungry, aren't you? You can just make this into bread. Once again, the, the temptation of the sin has nothing to do with food, but the means the vehicle was food. It was, maybe I, this worked once, right? Years ago, it worked with that lady. I'll go, I went there and I appealed to her stomach. I appealed to her appetite. I showed her something that looked good and she fell for it. Maybe it'll work again. So the second time, round two, he does the same thing. I'm going to appeal to his appetite. He hasn't been eating. This is perfect. This is a perfect situation for me. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. Let's, let's give him an opportunity to make some food. Because he's probably hungry. Let me appeal to the stomach, the appetite, the flesh. And I'll get him to trust me more than God through his flesh, through his body. 
Do you guys see the parallels? It's super interesting, right? Genesis 3 and Matthew 4 are the same battle, but the difference is, is that where Eve failed, because she was, she was deceived through her stomach, through her belly, through her appetite, through her flesh, she was unsuccessful, she was defeated, but Jesus in that moment, he was successful. He did not succumb, he was not deceived. He did not give in, and he was victorious. Now, what was it that the writers of the New Testament explain about what Jesus was doing in this moment that we need to pay attention to? Right, chapter 4, verse 2, it says, After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. This is so interesting. Another detail. Why would they mention this? Why would they mention that he was fasting? It didn't say he was praying. I'm sure Jesus prayed, but it didn't mention that specific detail that Jesus prayed. But for some reason, they felt compelled to note that before Jesus went toe-to-toe with the devil, before he went to face the temptations and deceptions of the devil, he fasted. Now, as someone who never fasts, I think it's safe to say that I never fast except for intermittent fasting, which is a totally different thing. But I've never really fasted for spiritual reasons. Someone who doesn't really understand fasting, as someone like that, when I read this, though, something in me is like, you have to pay attention to that. Right? And if you're a person, you're like, Ugh. when you first heard the title or the, of this series, fasting, you're like, I'm out, dude. I'm going to get on my phone. I'm going to do some check some email, play a game. If you're like that, you're like, what is fasting? Why is fasting? How is fasting? Even for us in that place, when you read the story, when Jesus went in to face the devil, and the only detail it gives about Jesus' preparation was fasting, oh man, like I gotta pay attention to that. You gotta pay attention to that. There's something there that I think God wants us to look into. As much as I don't wanna do this. Now, the thing is, Jesus, for Jesus, fasting was a part of life, actually. You see it over and over and over again. Jesus fasted, actually, but he doesn't ever really talk about it. But there is one part, one part in his teaching where he actually does talk about fasting. And I want you guys to pay attention to two important details in Matthew chapter 6. He says this. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast... Put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Two important details. And it comes to us in the very first words of his teaching. When you fast. Why is this important? He does not say, if you fast. When you fast. An important detail that you got to understand, we all got to understand, is Jesus assumed that his followers would fast. It's not a question if, if you decide to fast. If 2023 comes along and you make a New Year's decision, you know, New Year's resolution to fast. It's not if, it's when. Jesus assumed, this is hard, right? Jesus assumed that everyone who believed in him, who followed him, would fast. Ouch. Like, that gets me, because I don't do it. But he clearly assumed that every follower would do it. The second assumption, as he explains this, he assumes, number one, that all his followers will fast, and number two, all his followers will mess it up, which makes me feel a lot better. 
right? He says, my, my followers will, will fast, and I'm pretty sure when they fast, they're going to have the wrong motivations. They're going to have the wrong understanding of why they're doing it. They're going to mess up. They're not going to experience the benefits because they're going to do it the wrong way. They're going to probably take selfies and put on Instagram and say, oh, fasting, I'm so hungry, but praise the Lord, right? Like, he's like, my, my followers are going to mess it up. So I better teach him how to do it right. Fasting was actually a part of the Christian walk for many, many years for Christians. For those who follow Jesus, it was an assumed thing that you would fast. Isn't that crazy? Because, like, I don't want to ask. I don't want to get a poll, right? But I'm assuming most of you don't do this. And if I'm wrong, you can tell me I'm wrong. But my assumption is most of us do not fast for spiritual reasons. Some of you probably do it for health reasons. Some of you want a six-pack. You want to get cut. So you're like, I'm going to fast. I've been doing it. It doesn't work, guys. Clearly, it doesn't really work. Right? But how many of us are doing it for spiritual reasons? But for so much of the church's history, this was as much a part of Christian life as praying, reading the Bible, and going to church. Let me share this quote with you from John Wesley. If you don't know who John Wesley is, he's a super important Christian leader from kind of like the 1700s, 1800s time. Like he's so, so important. He's not Adventist. He was a Methodist. He was kind of the founder of Methodism. But he is so, so important. Like, did you guys know that because of John Wesley, we have things like Sunday school and Sabbath school. Like you have Sabbath school because of John Wesley. He was the one who created the idea of Sabbath school. Okay, not Sabbath school, Sunday school. And then Adventist people took it and it made it part of, you know, our church. John Wesley was the one who invented small groups. So if you've ever been in a small group, if you're part of a small group, thank you, John Wesley. So he was so influential in the church. But listen to what he said in the 1700s. He said, I fear there are now thousands of Methodists, so-called, both in England and Ireland, who following the same bad example have entirely left off fasting, who are so far from fasting twice a week, twice a week, that they do not fast twice in the month. And listen to that last sentence here. This is, this is harsh. The man or woman that never fasts is no more in the way to heaven than the man that never prays. Woo. That's rough. That's some truth right there. Right? He's like, these guys, they're like fake, man, because they don't even fast twice a month. Barely maybe even fast twice a month, let alone twice a week. This was a part of Christian life. If, like, if you were a follower of Jesus, you prayed, you read the Bible, you went to church, and you fasted twice a week. Twice a week. That's crazy. In fact, kind of like the, the, the tradition was is that Christians would fast Wednesdays and Fridays. Twice a week, every week. It wasn't like a one-time thing. It was every single week you would fast two days. And the way they did it was you would fast essentially from, from morning till evening. So you would fast Monday uh, breakfast and lunch, and then you would eat dinner. That's how they did it. And it was typically Wednesdays and Fridays. And this was a part of the regular routine of a Christian in these days. And some people, they would do sundown to sundown. So they would skip dinner on Tuesday, and they wouldn't eat until dinner on Wednesday. Or kind of the other one where it's just like the morning, the breakfast, and the lunch. So it was a part of the Christian experience and the part of the Christian that, that a lot of us don't, don't do, don't have. I certainly don't. But the real reason why this is so important to understand is because we've, I think we've lost something actually really important by not fasting. That's the sense I'm getting. And, and, and I don't have any stories, I don't have any experience, any testimonies, but I get the sense that it's a bigger part of the Christian experience that, that I thought it was. I thought it was for these reasons and these times 
but it's not. It's a part of daily life. Now, the reason why this is important, again, is because of how it intersects with those tensions. Remember, the first tension we're talking about today is, I want to change, but I can't. Why does fasting deal with this feeling of, I want to change, but I can't? Now, remember the whole flesh thing, and we're going to get back to it, and then we're going to kind of explain this, unpack this, and then we're going to close. The reason why we don't change what we want to, according to Paul, is the flesh. And fasting responds, deals with, engages the flesh. The Apostle Paul says, if you want to grow, if you want to change, this is what I want you to learn. Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. Listen to this. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Okay? Pay attention to that. Crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The funny thing about this is the verse right before this is the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, right? And, and this was actually our children's ministry memory verse for this, for this last month. And it's like cute, right? And, and there's a song about it and they dress up as fruits and da-da-da. And it's like all cute and fun. But when Paul talks about the fruits of the Spirit, as beautiful and wonderful and cute and nice as it is, right after he says, so if you want that, it's like, hey, you guys want that? You want love, joy, peace, patience, kind of goodness, faith, and gentleness, self-control? You want that? Well, you better crucify the flesh, is what he says. Maybe we should add that to our children's ministry uh, memory verse afterwards, right? I want the fruits of the Spirit. Crucify the flesh. Kill it. And he gets really grounded. Nail it to a cross, is what he says. You have to crucify the flesh in order to belong to Christ Jesus, to grow in him. Here's the thing. Fasting is one of the ways you begin to crucify the flesh. Fasting is one of the methods, one of the things you can do physically to begin crucifying the flesh. And you do things. Many of you do things to crucify the flesh already. You pray. You read the Bible. You go to church. You listen to sermons. Every time you engage in spiritual activity, you're, you're moving towards crucifying the flesh. The reason why this is important is because fasting is one of the ways that we never do. It's one of the ways to crucify the flesh that none of us really ever engage in or take part in. But it's a powerful tool, so powerful that the New Testament writers mentioned that Jesus fasted before he faced the devil. See, what fasting does, or so I'm told, or so I've learned, or so I've studied, what fasting does, fasting is able to do something in you that when you, when you stop eating and you prevent yourself from eating, as you begin to starve your body, what happens is you are starving the flesh at the same time. Remember that thing that disorders your desires, that confuses you, and, and the thing that makes you want, love, and do bad things that takes control of you? Because that's what the flesh does, right? The flesh takes you captive, doesn't it? That's why in those moments you're saying, I should really stop. I should really stop right now. I, I, I should really, really, really stop. I need to stop right now. That moment, that's the flesh in control of you. Those moments where afterwards you're like, why did I do that again? Why did I make that mistake again? I promised myself last time I wouldn't do it, but I did it. Oh, I'm such a failure. I'm such an idiot. Like, that's the flesh in control of you. What fasting does is it starves the body, and so by doing, starves the flesh. By the power of the Holy Spirit, it starves the appetite. And as you gain mastery over the flesh, 
as you grow to be able to control and dominate your flesh, you're able to take your flesh because it rules over you and you put it in its rightful place. And you dominate and rule over your flesh as it was meant to be. That's what fasting helps you to do. By, by, by depending on the Holy Spirit's power for food and energy and strength, by through that experience as God reveals the weaknesses and the things, the hangups in your life, somehow the Holy Spirit empowers you as you discipline your body, you also discipline the flesh. And the power of the flesh begins to weaken over your life. This is what St. Thomas Akempis said, right? Early church father, early church leader. He says that when you fast, it's going to do other things to you. And this is super interesting, right? This is what he says. He says, refrain from gluttony and thou shalt the more easily restrain all the inclinations of the flesh. Whoa. If you restrain from gluttony, from overeating, if you can control your belly, if you can control your stomach you will more easily restrain the inclinations of the flesh, of the things that your flesh wants, those things that you know you shouldn't do, the things that you need to stop doing, the things that keep you from starting, the things you want to do. He says you can begin through the power of the Holy Spirit. By putting yourself in a place of fasting, you allow the Holy Spirit to give you strength over the flesh. That's crazy. That's crazy because I don't know about you, but all I use, my only weapon and arsenal against the flesh is willpower. That's all I got. And it's like this big and it's weak and I can't trust in it and it doesn't work. But the, what, what the Bible is teaching us, what Jesus is teaching us, what St. Thomas the Kempis is teaching us, you have another weapon in your arsenal against the flesh and it's called fasting. This is what Augustine wrote. This takes a little bit, like he uses some weird words here, but, but it's really powerful. Because it is sometimes necessary to check the delights of the flesh in respect to licit pleasures, in order to keep it from yielding to illicit joys. What does this mean? What, what is he saying here? He's saying sometimes there are things that we like that are licit, meaning they're not bad, they're not sinful, they're not evil, but sometimes we need to check the flesh, the body, the stomach, the appetite that wants to do things that aren't necessarily bad in order to keep it from leading us to a place to want and do things that are actually bad. Right, like food is innocent for the most part. Food is generally innocent. It's not evil. It's not wrong to eat what you love. It's not wrong. But as you begin to be able to be disciplined and have mastery over even that, it gives you strength over the things that you do that are wrong, are evil, are sinful, are unhealthy. Like a lot of writers and, and, and people who, who do fasting regularly and talk about the power of it, especially for anyone who struggles with sin in, of any sexual nature, they said fasting and power over the stomach helps so much with this. And I could totally get it, right? Like I, I can totally experience it in my life. Like, you know, I never, I never really stress ate in my life. Like that wasn't really a thing for me until I had children. And then after having kids, I'm like, dude, the kids are asleep. Like, give me the snacks. Give me the ice cream. Give me the frozen burritos. Like, give me everything right now. I want to eat it all, right? Like, I, had, I, I began to feel that in my body, in my body, like, I had this desire to just, like, consume so much stuff. And some of you guys, you know, you feel me about this. You feel me on this. 
And what I've noticed is that when my attitude towards food is eat whatever, whenever, it's really easy for that to translate to other aspects of my life where I'll do whatever, I'll do it whenever. If, we, if so, with something as simple as food, I'm just like, YOLO, man, who cares? That often translates to other decisions that I have to make that are much more consequential, that are much more important. But because I've cultivate, cultivated a culture and a life where I just do whatever my body wants to do, in those moments, I'm much, much weaker. What fasting does is it puts you in a place where the Holy Spirit can empower you to be able to discipline and dominate the flesh. And here's what's the best thing. And this is like the last thing that I'm going to say and then we're going to be done. Do you know what happens to you when you dominate the flesh? Do you know what happens when you take the appetites that your body and your stomach want and you're able to discipline it and bring it down and it has no more power over you? As you begin to do that, you know what happens? as you begin to love the flesh and the things less of this world, your love for the Father and your desire for God grow. That's awesome, isn't it? As you diminish your love for the earthly and fleshy things, your love and desire for God increases. And here's my assumption. I think you want that. I want that. I want to be able to look at my life and say, no, my flesh doesn't control me. I'm not in love with the world. I'm not obsessed with the things that my flesh wants. Instead, my love and my desire for God and heavenly things has grown. Now, for so many years, I was like, I don't know how to do that. And the things that I've tried, they're not working. And what I'm thinking and what I'm hoping, honestly, what I'm praying about is that fasting may be one of those things that I can engage in so that I can dominate my flesh. That through me, God can dominate the flesh and my love for him and my desire for him would grow. I think you want that. And I want that. Now, do not worry. There is potluck today. We are having lunch after this. Do not freak out. Some of you are like, oh my goodness, what are we going to eat then? They should have announced that there's no potluck. No, don't worry. I'm not declaring in a fast for the church. We're not canceling potlucks for the next four weeks. That's not what we're doing. Here's what we are doing. For the next three weeks, we're going to study this idea and this practice of fasting. And then at the end of it, I just want you to decide if this is something that you want to make a part of your life. It's not, we're not forcing it. We're not having everyone do it. If you feel convicted after three weeks that, yeah, you know what, I think I need to do this. And, and don't do like a seven-day fast, right? Like it's not about a five-day fast. It's not just like go hard. It's about making it regularly a part of your life, one or two days a week. And we're going to get into the hows and the instructions and how we can do this later on in the series. I just want to introduce to you the idea of fasting, but also the power of what fasting can accomplish and what God can do through this practice in your life. Like, this might be it, guys. Like, this might be the thing, you know. It's not a silver bullet, but maybe it might just be the thing to get you over the edge to have that victory over that thing you've been struggling with for years. It just might be. Now, next week, we're going to talk about the second tension. The tension is, I want to pray, but I can't. I pray and I don't hear God. It doesn't mean anything. I don't feel anything. I don't see anything. I don't hear anything. And I struggle to have a deep, meaningful prayer life. If that's you, I want to invite you to come back or join us online, watch on YouTube, listen to our podcast. 
And join us next week. I'm excited to see what God is going to do through this. I'm excited to see who's going who's to answer that call, who's going to be convicted to take part in this. And if you don't, that's fine. No judgment here. But I believe that as we go through this, this might be just the thing for a lot of people here to get us over to that place, to take us to that place spiritually that we've always wanted to go. So I hope you join me with that. In a couple of weeks, we'll make that decision. But for now, we're going to end this message. We'll have potluck. We'll celebrate. We'll have our baptism. It's going to be a fantastic Sabbath. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you, God, once again for tough messages. Messages that I don't understand. Messages that I'm just learning about. I'm thankful that as a community, as a church family, we can learn about this together. And God, I don't know about everyone here in this room, but Lord, I know I want my love for the things of this world, of fleshy things, of things of my appetite and my flesh. I want them to be diminished. I want them to be nothing, Lord, in my life. And I want my love for you and my desire for you and my longing for you. I want that to grow. I want that to increase. I want that to be the pursuit of my every day. And so, Father, if there's anyone else in that place, Lord, give us open hearts and open minds to this strangely foreign topic that so many of your followers are doing for so many years and you yourself were doing on this earth. Lord, I pray, God, that you would begin to stir our minds Give us questions, give us thoughts. Lead us to a place to make a decision to do something different so that we might actually be changed in this new year. In your name we pray, amen.